0: I remember my dad, Michael. There's a big part of his life that I haven't shown you yet. And it was a very big part of our lives growing up and still is. He's at work today at the hair salon because not only is he my dad, he's also my hairdresser. So right now we're doing a very annoying thing and turning up at his work, which I do about once every month so that he can expertly trim my fringe hello, hello. am I allowed in you're, you're lobby. you have to register I have to register okay. yes, so hi dad well Michael is a perfect example of the kind of person where what they do for a living is so closely tied to who they are his job, his identity one big mesh yeah. Who's picking you up today?
1: Giuseppe, my son. Giuseppe, your son?
0: And half of my childhood seriously was like grabbing the hair salon broom, sweeping the floor, eating lunch in the cramped kitchenette, getting scared of the blow drying and greeting customers at the front door. And everywhere that my dad goes, he carries around this little black leather bag that has a tiny pair of scissors inside it, just in case he runs into someone that needs an emergency haircut.
1: Got stopped at the airport going to Melbourne once. I didn't realise that my scissors were a, a weapon. Because they were have been an extension of my life ever since I was ten. So I'd never and the lady says, Don't you know that they are not allowed to have scissors on the plane? And I go. Oh, are they? You know, I wasn't. Um, you know, I wasn't even thinking about scissors being as a weapon because yeah. they're just like an extension to my fingers. You know, like Johnny Depp.
0: You know, uh, scissor fingers. Oh yeah, <laughs> Edward scissor hands. <laughs> hands yeah. Scissor fingers. Okay. All right. Well, where do you want to cut? my... I thought that Dad dreamed of being a flamboyant hairdresser, but today I asked him what made him choose his career path.
1: I was never asked or asked the question, do you want to be a hairdresser now? So it, it was just, OK, you go there and you do it. You know? So you just do your duty. It's just a matter of um, whatever is, works for the family and you don't question it because that's the, the environment. And I didn't find that it was wrong. It was just a matter of duty to your family and that's been my duty for, the, for all my life.
0: Dad started hairdressing when he was 10 in Italy. When he came to Australia when he was 14, he couldn't speak English, he couldn't finish high school, so he just started working. So now he's in his late 60s, he's been on his feet his whole life, and we've started talking about him retiring. Now the thing he struggles with is the same thing that I struggle with. Maybe you do too, but it's that sense of duty. Constant productivity and this idea that people rely on you.
1: The fact is that uh, my clients are not my clients; they are my friends because we interact. We spend hours together many times, and we go from generation to generation. I mean, we go. I have third, fourth generation in my shop, and and it's hard to move away. It's hard for me to to decide to. To stop working it's like i i feel like i am let these people down if i do and many of my clients go they've been coming to me for some 20 30 some 40 years and they said to me you're not allowed to retire michael you're not allowed to do it because i mean what are we going to do we who's going to do our hair and i go yeah well you know <laughs> i know family, my family's keeping telling me dad retire and i'm going yeah yeah i will i will i will i will but you know when it comes to the crunch I go, mm, uh, mm, you know.
0: What is it that stops you?
1: I hear so much about people saying, once you retire, that's the end of you. A lot of people retire, they move away from their work and they get sick and they die. You know, your brother gets his hair cut every two weeks and so does your nephew, you know, my grandchildren. And so you get your fringe cut every <laughs> and your mother comes every week to get the hair down because she can't find anybody else in Sydney who can do it as good as I do. And of course what happens is that you know I keep on saying, Well who's gonna do your hair? It's gonna cost you guys a
0: Someone t- else will do it.
1: Yeah, no, but it's gonna cost you guys a fortune and then I'll feel guilty, you know, you know, and I don't wanna be feeling guilty. Done. I'm just gonna drive a little bit for you, I'm just blow it down for you. Okay, now because you're my daughter, it's only going to be $50. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Break a leg. Thank you. i break too, anyway. Okay. One for you,
0: one for me. Okay, okay. Ciao. ciao. Thank, Thank you. you. Classic Linda sitting in a car and, you know, all, <laughs> all scissor fingers, jokes aside, it's actually really got me thinking about that relationship between who you are and what you do. That's the reason you're with me right now. Like my dad, my work is clearly an extension of me. I am literally... <laughs> holding a microphone, talking to you in my car. I am carrying you around like you're my dad's pair of tiny scissors in his bag. So I understand the hilarious irony of this. I can hear you laughing at me. But seriously, I do wonder about this idea that my self-worth and my day-to-day satisfaction hinges on my so-called success at work. And so what happens when that's gone? This time last year, I'd put in all this energy into moving to LA and investing in my relationship and lining up all this new exciting work and I would sit and look at my calendar and it would look fucking dazzling. And then in March last year, shit happened and it made me see the harsh reality of that big question. How closely is your career linked to your identity? What actually feeds our self-esteem? We're going to talk to a professional who shows people how we can figure out the healthiest balance between work and life. But first, we're going to see my friend Kumi. Oh shit, I've forgotten the number of her house. I always knock on the wrong door. I think this is Gobby's house, but I've kind of forgotten. I always fucking go to people's wrong addresses. It's like just what I do. I don't know why I do it. It's like I just can't see. I can't remember the numbers. OK, it's the right number. Yes. OK. Oh, fuck, my phone. Hey, little mogul. Yeah. Hi. How do you try? I am, whoa, I'm standing outside uh, Kumi's house, and I just drove here. I'm going to talk to her for the podcast. While well, you're there
2: now.
0: Yeah, I just... This is what we call a classic opposite time zone vibe where you're really up and active and your partner is about to go to sleep. So if you've ever done long distance across the time zones, you will understand this dance around the clock. But you also know that these little check-ins really count each day.
1: I do have options. I could pass that bitch like stocked and What's he say? Huh? Who says, what's poppin'? Brand new whip to something. I can pass that bitch like something. I got a, I got an option. I can pass that bitch like something.
0: Yeah, you, you've you got options. Uh,
1: okay. I'm
0: gonna go brush my teeth. You go do your interview. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, I you Pardon? I so
1: miss you very much.
0: I miss you. Okay. I love you. Sleep well. Love I'll talk to you, you. tomorrow. Anytime, Bye. And call me if you wake up. Bye. I hope I wake up. <laughs> 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 okay. Like, Bye. <laughs> Bye. Hello? Hello. Okay, hold on. I'm just leaving my little shoes outside. Oh. Cute. What? What are you laughing at? No, I'm no, holding no. my. I'm holding my no, gear. No.
2: Are you recording? Yeah, of course Hello. I'm recording. Why are you laughing at me? Look at your little outfit and your socks <laughs> and your little oh my god, you're just so sweet in your little pants. I wore your are I wore your my toe socks for <laughs> you, and you've left your shoes at the door like an Asian person. <laughs> Look at all the shoes, right?
0: I know. That's why I was like, this must be Kumi's house. Do you want to come up? Yes, of course. Okay, <sighs> you know what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna am I walking into this this yeah. study? Study. Fuck, it's huge. I know,
2: it's messy. Like, this is still me wow, money. I can't believe it
0: it's the famous life. study that I've seen in photo shoots. I know, but this this is, is Kumi Taguchi. She's a great friend and one of my mentors. That's where all Kumi, Kumi has worked as a broadcaster, reading. presenter, like, see, presenter journalist, but through and through, she but is a storyteller. I've turned to her for advice so many times, and Kumi is passionate about her work, but has a deep sense of self outside of that.
2: There's an ego within this industry and many where who you are and the identity that you are on screen or on radio or in front of a camera can become what you perceive your identity to be. And when I was in my early 30s, like two years ago, (laughs) okay, approximately yes, or so, 10 years ago, when I was in my early 30s, um, I started to do a weather report. I was in Hong Kong, I was working, um, I was asked to read the weather for 30 seconds, and I was so excited and so grateful and nervous and stumbling. And I'm, oh my gosh, I read the weather on television. Then a few months after that, hey, would you want to read a bulletin every fortnight for the nightly news and that becomes a whole different kettle of fish and you feel important. So basically over time, I noticed after about six months, every fortnight the roster would be released with how many shifts you were reading the news. And in the very beginning when I was reading one weather shift, I was so excited and so grateful. And I noticed after a while The roster would come on my desk, a physical piece of paper, and I would look at the line next to my name like, someone has decided that, Kumi, you are worthy of reading five news shifts this week, Mm. which is arbitrary, right? It's literally a spreadsheet. Then I would look at the other people, mainly women, reading the news, and I'd be counting their shifts and I'd be like, how come they got six and I only got five? And I noticed that my sense of worth was tied to this freaking piece of paper that landed on my desk every fortnight. And my anxiety levels would increase just before the piece of paper dropped on my desk. Competitiveness, worth, and it was becoming really unhealthy for my body and my mind. And so one day I woke up and I don't know what the kind of impetus of this was but I woke up and I looked at myself in the mirror and I said to myself don't you ever tie who you are and your identity to the title that someone decides to give you for your job and I felt this real sense that if I didn't break this cycle of I'm worthy because someone decided to put me on a roster for five shifts of news reading and that I'm going to tie my identity to that then it's going to destroy me. It's going to make me anxious. It's going to make me hold on to things too tightly. It's going to make me jealous. It's going to make me insecure. I felt all this stuff coming up. And after I made that choice to not care about the title and the role that I was given, the sense of relief was massive. I've felt it rear its ugly head. As cliche as it sounds, it is ugly and it is kind of rears up. Occasionally, probably two or three times since then, where you're feeling like, how come that person got that shift and I didn't and why were they promoted and I wasn't? And I just go, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You could get a call this afternoon saying you have no job and if all my identity is tied up in that role and that job and that shift and those hours that I'm on air, then what happens to me when it's taken away from me. What happens to my identity? Who am I? Am I still curious? Am I still interested? For me, it was very important to come to a crunch point where I learned that it was very unhealthy if I continue to tie my identity to my job. This
0: anxiety around who we are and how we make ourselves count in this world is something that Kumi has seen up close in
2: other people as well. I went and interviewed about six young veterans who'd come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, spent two weeks, literally a fly on the wall in the hospital. They were getting treated for severe PTS. One guy I still think about most days I wake up and think, is he alive? How is he going? And every single person I interviewed had a very different story about where they served what their job was, how they came to have post-traumatic stress. The one common thing, though, was how they identified themselves. So if you gave me your business card before this happened, the before being PTS, being in a mental health institution, whatever, what would your business card have said? And they would say I was in charge of logistics for the Australian Army or I was an SAS officer or whatever. That would be on their business card. Then I said to them, what would you put on your business card now? Many of them motivated to go for treatment because they wanted to be a better father or husband or their relationships breaking down or something. So I thought in my mind they would say on my business card now is father, son, trainee, truck driver. Every single person said X whatever they used to be, X logistics officer, X SAS person. I just got shivers telling you the story again. And it just made me so damn sad because I thought if these beautiful young men who have sacrificed so much can never detach their identity from what they were, then how can they move on with their life? They will always look back at the person they were as a better version of themselves and as something they've lost. So they've essentially lost themselves. And I remember just thinking, how can a person move on or shift who they are or have a sense of ownership over their identity when who they are is tied up to a job and a person they can never be again? And it's just always stuck with me that we need to, as a society, stop asking people what they do for a job. Why don't we ask people what makes them happy? How do they pass their time? What do you do for fun? Like, but the first thing we ask people is, oh, right, hi, Linda. So, what do you do?
0: Commie. God, I love her. She always just gives these perfect bite sized snacks for thought. Now it's time we talk to a pro. Let's find out why we get so twisted up in our work and how we can draw the lines. Hello. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Hi. Wow, your workshop's even got air conditioning in it. Yeah, this is, it's an, this o- is like... it's
3: an overpriced shed in an underpriced office. That's oh how my gosh. And so, take a seat.
0: How wonderful. I've and taken you know. us to meet John O'Nicholas. Mm. He works from his home office, more specifically wow. from okay. his fancy so workshop. let me just. I that was the best way to do it. If you had a... He's one of awesome the leading awesome mental health experts awesome in the country. Awesome. Jono was the CEO of Reach Out Australia for years, helping young people and their parents manage mental well-being, and he's been nominated for the Australian Mental Health Prize. Now he runs Wellbeing Outfit a global company teaching people the healthiest balance between work and life. So why do we place so much importance on job success? Why are we like this? One of the things for most
3: and almost everybody is we want to be loved. We want to be needed. And so someone who desperately needs us, and they describe it in really functional terms, there's a deadline, Actually, what we emotionally experience is someone loves me. Someone really needs me. The first question I would say is, are you prepared that you're actually unimportant? Right? If you look at a big machine like the ABC or Triple J, as much as it was a really important part of your life, the day you leave, the week you leave, the month you leave, it rolls on. And what you have to realize is what's important for you isn't important for the machine, once people realise that, there's actually allowed, you're allowed to let go. What I would kind of say to people is that's really different than your kids or your partner. If you let them go, they don't forget, but the machine forgets. So I think the first thing I would say to people, what's a red flag is if you think the machine cares about you, then you're wrong. <laughs> you're not that important in the world, except to the people you love. To them, you are their world. To the machine, they'll cope without you. So be there because you want to be there. Be there because it brings you joy, but also recognize that the opportunity cost of you being there is you're not elsewhere. So don't be there because the machine needs you. Be there because that's the place where you want to be and weigh up that there are other places you could be and actively choose not to be in those places. Actively say, I don't want to be with my mum and dad for dinner on a Friday night because this is where I want to be and reconcile yourself to that. Not I need to be because they desperately can't cope without me, because this is where I need to be. So I think that would be my first red flag. If you're saying to yourself, these people need me, you've got an outsized ego. And once you let it go, then you say, this is where I want to be. And therefore you can make an active choice to not be there at some other point in the future. I think the, the second thing is when you are most excited to be there, plan your exit criteria. What are the three things where I'd say, I get to leave at the top when I've done this, this, and this, right? And then once you hit those criteria, you run. Because it will always be, I think, particularly a place that gives you purpose. I was one of the founding staff members of Reach Out. I was there 21 years. I was CEO for 10. It was kind of baked into my soul, right? And I love it. I still love it. But- If I stayed there forever, there was no other opportunity for someone else to do something else. So it wasn't really of service to the organisation by hanging on. It was just comfortable for me. So I think the other part is when you are so purpose-driven or you think it's great, realising that if you're there, someone else can't be there and that you plan your exit and you go is a really good thing. So if you're thinking of leaving, go talk to headhunters, talk to other people, put your CV together, start emotionally preparing what the next step will be And if you find it's not right, you haven't done anything wrong. So I think you're allowed to think of other things. For me, that idea of plan your next step, that you've got somewhere else to go, you're not just leaving. So there's not that sense of loss. Does that make sense? There's a sense of excitement about what could be next. Think about leaving as a gift to someone else right, is the other easy thing, which is if I leave and I leave a great legacy, then someone else is going to step in and, they're going to extend that legacy and be excited about the baton change.
0: I get excited about the change. I get excited about taking on new things and new challenges, but I think the risk for me is overcommitment and taking on way too many things and then prioritising work above all else. So what do you do? when those lines between work and life
3: just blur. You've got to reintroduce those lines. One thing is that there is always an opportunity cost. Every time you choose to put mental effort or spend time in one space, by definition, you're choosing not to invest that elsewhere. So every time you do an extra tweet or go to an extra concert or do an extra thing at work, by definition, you're not calling your mum and you're not hanging out with your brothers and sisters and you're not calling your best friend and you're not relaxing in front of the TV. And one of the things for me then is to start defining what is success. You can be a successful artist or you can have a successful career or successful CEO, or you can become a successful human. And fundamentally successful humans are kind of polymaths but it means that they say I'm going to be mostly successful in my relationship with my partner. I'm going to be mostly successful at work. I'm going to be mostly successful with my kids. I'm going to be mostly successful with my friends. But that means that you can't be as good as a specialist. So I think fundamentally as we grow, one of the challenges is that we have to choose do you want to be great at one thing and are you willing to trade off all those other things? So when you get to your end of your days and say, I was a great musician or I was a great business leader, am I also prepared to say, oh, maybe I wasn't as good a dad as I was or maybe I wasn't as good a partner. And you may be comfortable with that. That's, That's absolutely your choice, but you've got to be clear about it. Otherwise, I think you find yourself accidentally in those roles. My solution is actually I set up every day before I start work is what's my daily success plan and it always has four criteria on it. What's my three wellbeing goals? What's my three social goals? What's my three work goals? And what's my three family goals? The way in which you set it up is you're only allowed three in each category. So there needs to be wellbeing goals. So it's what are the three things that you need to do to look after yourself psychologically and physically? What are the three social goals? So how do you maintain a social life? You know, I need to book in a lunch with a friend in three weeks' time. What are the three work goals? What are the three really important things you need to do today? And I added in a fourth category, which is personal. So for me, a big part of my identity is trying to win family. So what are the three things where if I do that today, I've won family? And they're really mundane things often. It's like making sure you hang out the clothes, make dinner tonight. But it's about knowing that those things are as equal priority for me in feeling successful in life as doing really well at work.
0: Okay, so one step further, what happens when you lose your footing in a category or two, especially in this last year? What can we do to improve our well-being in that scenario? So
3: if you look at what actually drives our well-being, there's really always three factors. There's connectedness. So human beings are social animals. We don't feel well if we're not feeling connected to others. Purpose, does my life have meaning? in a macro sense. And then the third one is actually progress. So am I getting better at something? And what I think has happened for a lot of people through the pandemic is that they've actually lost purpose and and progress. In the absence of reward of work that gave you progress, you all of a sudden had to start building that momentum yourself, and it becomes really, really challenging. So what's your project? How are you going to be a more interesting human being at dinner than you were at breakfast? What have you done today that makes you a more interesting human being? And once you set yourself that challenge at breakfast, you go, Wow, I could read about a gallery. I could, you know, do all these really important things. And that's what we, you know, find out certainly from the evidence that people who have really long lives, the one fundamental truth is that they're curious, they're not more physically healthy but they're interested in what tomorrow can bring. If you look at some of the great thinkers of the world, like Leonardo da Vinci, the reason he stopped doing so many things is there were so many more interesting things to do. Right? He already worked out how to be a great artist. Now how about I understand human anatomy? Now how about I understand this? And, and so that sense of what else I could do? What's my progress? How else I could go to the bottom of the pile and just get better? Once you get into that pattern, there's lots of exciting things you can do.
0: Oh, I love that. I also thought you were going to say Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> I don't know. I, what? I was like, yes, Leonardo DiCaprio. What did, what did he say?
2: <laughs>
3: In any part of your day, there's going to be things that are more important and less important plan out and have a successful life not a successful career and the way in which you do that is you build in the discipline of have a successful hour have a successful day have a successful life so get to win the hour win the day win your life
0: have you put that on a t-shirt win the hour (laughs) win the day win your life no i
3: haven't there you go you
0: need win the shed here you go how do you feel now I feel like we have some tools that even a naughty girl like me can follow. I'm learning that a truly successful life means something way more well rounded than I used to think. It means winning friendships, winning in my well being goals, winning with my family and with Magnus just as much as work goals. And my dad is setting himself up to retire. I've realized he actually has that essential curiosity that John O. spoke about. He's doing his Tai Chi every week. He wants to sign up to pottery classes and he's slowly letting go of that guilt that he and I both have about work. And this morning I wrote out my daily success plan. And now that I've recorded this episode as one of my work category boxes, it is time To say bye. So bye. Oh, fuck. The last thing on my work checklist is to tell you that next time on Tough Love, it's going to be the one year anniversary of Magnus and I being apart. So we're bringing you how to survive long distance. If you're missing someone special, What's your number one tough love tip to make it work? Or ask me a question. What do you need to know? Send me a voice recording through direct message on Instagram at Linda Mariano or record a voicemail on your phone and email hellotoughlove at gmail.com. Tough Love is a podcast by me, Linda Mariano produced by me and Amelia Chapello, with support from Mike Williams. Join me every two weeks on your podcast player. Make sure you hit subscribe. And if you like the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. Okay. Thank you. Love you. Bye.